Welcome to the Open to Hope show. I'm your host, Dr. Gloria Horsley, with my daughter and co-host. Dr. Heidi Horsley. This show is brought to you by the Open to Hope Foundation in partnership with the Compassionate Friends and the Elizabeth Kubler-Ross Foundation. Well, Heidi, uh, we have a real fabulous person and a fabulous expert on our show today. And he's been on our TV show, and I think he might have been on our radio show before. We'll have to ask him. But anyway, all right, why don't you introduce him? Okay, I just want to say to see to see him, to see Dr. Dale Larson on our cable show, you just need to go to opentohope.com and you can see him. And like you said, Mom, he has a wealth of knowledge to share today, and I've, I'm honored to introduce him. So with that, Dr. Dale Larson is a brief sibling and a professor of counseling psychology at Santa Clara University, where he directs graduate studies in health psychology. He is a Fulbright Scholar, a fellow in the American Psychological Association, and author of the award-winning book, The Helper's Journey, Working with People Facing Grief, Loss, and Life-Threatening Illness. His clinical practice focuses on assisting individuals and families confronting grief and life-limiting illness. Welcome to the show, Dale. Well, thank you. It's a real pleasure to join you. It's great to have you on today, Dale. And I know one of the things that you don't talk a lot about, which is kind of interesting, I had you tell me that you actually had a brother die, your brother Dickie, and you were 11 years old and he was five. You know, it's funny, but when you scratch the surface of people that are in the area of grief and loss, you often find that they have had a loss. So it didn't surprise me too much to hear that you were in this field and uh, that you'd had a loss. Because I think that it's a hard field. I mean, it's uh, to be able to hear these stories, sometimes I think that you have had to have had that experience yourself. Have you got any thought on that? I, I think it's true. I, I think, well, actually the ages were reversed, which is significant. But I was five, I might have misspoke, and my, my brother was 11. So I was very young. But what, what really happened to me then, you know, as I reflect on it, uh, is, is really significant in terms of me getting into the field. Because... My parents never mentioned his name again for 30 years. My brother's name was wow. even though they went to the cemetery on their own. They didn't take me. They, they really tried to shield me from that. Yet my mother was depressed. I, could, I remember, you know, seeing that. And, you know, the, the, for years I went around the country as part of my lectures talking about help the sibs grieve and never really mm-hmm. conscious that it, that wasn't a research area of mine that I was really talking about that. I was really talking about help this sib grieve. And someone once pointed out and said, well, didn't you mention, you know, over a coffee that your brother had died? And I said, yeah. And they said, you don't study sibs and their grief? And I said, no. And she said, well, maybe, (laughs) you know, this is why you're talking about it. And I really said, oh, my gosh, you know, I wasn't really aware of it. It wasn't until I saw the uh, Robert Redford film, Ordinary People, and I, I was watching with my wife, and I saw my brother's face appear in that scene where there are two boys around the raft, and the, the boy who's featured in the film is reaching out, and he can't quite hold on to his brother. I actually literally saw my brother's face appear on the screen somehow, and I thought I was on some sort of drug had been put in my coffee or something. And I went out to the car and sobbed for a half an hour, and I had never cried in the 30 years before, and I could not stop crying. And I sat with my wife in the car and just cried, and I had never cried. So, you know, we carry our grief with us, and and, and I really, uh, it's a great point to make right now in the program. 
that we really do need to help Sid's grief. I was left alone on the porch at my grandmother's, and no one talked to me about my brother's death. And, and how did Dickie die, Dale? He fell off a rope swing and hit his head. And you know, it, These kinds of things you remember so vividly. I remember him coming home, and he initially said I fell off my bike because he was forbidden to go to this rope swing by my parents. But then it came mm-hmm. out that he was at the rope swing and fell off it hit his head and um, went into a, a coma and uh, died the next morning. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Yeah. Very tragic. Yeah. You know, it, when you said that your parents uh, were trying to protect you, I have to say one thing that I found as a parent, it's really hard to see your other kids cry. You know, mm-hmm. it, you're so devastated yourself, and it's really tough to see their sorrow, too along with yours, so it's really, really difficult. But as a, but as a brief sibling, I've got to come out and say, I, I, I hear what you're saying, Mom, and I understand that. I'm also wondering what would it be like for little Dale, here he is, only five years old. You know, Dickie's alive one minute, the next minute he dies after being in a coma, and, and it's never talked about again. That must have been really confusing as a little child. Yeah, because at five, you don't even understand reversibility, right? You don't understand about people coming and going and all that. It's got to be really confusing. Mm-hmm. And then there was the memorialization. There was a, in the home, you know, his room was preserved for a long time. And when I went in, I really had these very kind of weird feelings uh, walking through his room and relating to all the objects in it. And and yet we never had photos displayed, which gets us to continuing bonds. How did I maintain continuing mm-hmm. bonds with my brother when I was shielded from, you know, uh, discussions of him and and different kinds of rituals that might have kept him alive in my heart more in a more more um, comfortable or positive way? Although I loved him, I I didn't get much help in terms of um, maintaining a relationship with him and talking about him and my feelings about him. So my parents, I think, thought, well, five years old, it's almost like you won't even remember him, which is totally right. right. And also they could have passed down stories of you and your brother together and helped you remember oh. those stories when he was alive. Well, I don't want to take up our whole show with my own my own story, but it was amazing. I was lecturing in Illinois in my hometown. You know, hometown boy makes it good and give a big lecture for all these hospice and palliative care and grief people. And someone in the audience came up, and I mentioned, because I was going through my life history a little bit, and, you know, Joliet, and my brother had died. Well, someone came up and had actually been on my brother's baseball team. And this is really important for us, I think, to all think about. This man, who was very spiritual, was on my brother's baseball team, which was very important for my brother, who was an all-star baseball player came up and told me that he had prayed for my brother for 50 years. Oh, my gosh. he had thought about him. And his wife was standing there and said, you're Dickie's brother. (laughs) I just can't believe because my husband has been talking about this and praying for him for 50 years. Independent validation of how a life goes on in somebody else's heart. And this was just his teammate. And he was at the funeral. And when I look back, I remember seeing all these kids in baseball uniforms, his entire team, showed up. So, you know, we live on in the hearts of others. And so much, I can't think of a more meaningful moment in my life, really, than, you know, when I heard those. That's amazing. So it's never too late to get those stories. My mom and I are always talking about this. It's never too late. Yeah. That's wonderful. So talk a little bit about when you work with people, what model do you use to help them with grief and loss? 
Well, you know, models are models. I think all the literature we have on continuing bonds, disenfranchised grief, the dual process model, the, the task model, Bill Warden, we have all these different models that kind of describe the landscape. And But everyone grieves differently. And I just find that models are only useful to the extent that they deepen my empathy. So I, if I can understand the person better, if the model assists me to understand them better, not to put them in some sort of a pigeonhole or say, you know, this is going to be this way or that way, um, then that's helpful. And I think that there are, you know, certain things that really do make sense. You can actually predict a lot of things. If someone has a disenfranchised grief, they're going to have a lot of struggles because they haven't been able to talk about it. Talk about what what does disenfranchised grief mean? I mean, I'm a layperson. I have no idea what that word means. I'm sorry. Yeah. Well, what it, you know, it's been thought to mean or described in the literature is when you have a grief that society doesn't really welcome disclosure concerning. So if you have a child who's committed suicide, if you have uh, AIDS-related deaths, if you have um, other things that are stigmatized in any way, um, one tends to become a hidden griever because the rest of the world doesn't respond very well. Take all the veterans who come back and have had tremendous amount of grief. Well, most people don't want to hear about war story, hear war stories, or the fighting and loss of um, fellow soldier, soldiers and and all that. In fact, we know that society doesn't respond well to a lot of disclosures. And this is one of the dilemmas for grieving people, which is they have the distress disclosure dilemma, which is that they seek acceptance. They want to talk about this because they have distress, but they also fear rejection because people don't always respond well. We know that uh, PTSD disclosures, disclosures of PTSD experiences tend to lead to reactions which then enhance one's PTSD symptoms. Which so, is, which is post-traumatic social- stress syndrome, right? Disorder, yeah. Sorting. You got to okay. forgive me a little bit. I'm, I spend too much time in the ivory tower. <laughs> but, but the, um, but the, but the, uh, you know, the, the symptoms worsen, which is really tragic. So that's why we don't disclose a lot of our experiences. I think that's what Open to Hope is all about: is saying, let's let's open the conversation in, in a safe way. We have to really open it in a safe way with trusted confidants and find people who can listen. And that's where. I think counseling really comes in because society doesn't respond well to some of these experiences. And even when we are professional counselors, I mean, after I, you know, I worked with 9-11 families for 10 years, and one of the things that we would do is when we went into the homes of people that had lost firefighters in the Trade Center, we would set some boundaries for them, too. We would say, we are going to be in your home for 90 minutes, and we're going to be here listening to your story for 90 minutes because what we found is if we didn't do that, people that were grieving kind of didn't know how to set their own limits, and they would go on and on and on, and then they would feel so overly exhausted that they wouldn't want to see mm-hmm. us again. Mm-hmm. It was too yeah. much. So well, there's a way to, to titrate these things. Mm-hmm. You have to titrate yes, these exactly things for both the listener and the discloser. Dale, tell me, uh, I'm listening to this show. How do I know if I have post-traumatic stress syndrome? I mean, what if my child uh, died tragically suddenly uh, two months ago, you know, uh, and I can't sleep, I can't eat, I, you know, I'm having trouble doing, going to work, that kind of thing. Uh, is that normal? Well, it is 
it is pretty normal. In fact, most people who have had loss of a child are almost instantly what we call PTSD or there's post-traumatic stress for sure. And you're going to have the hypervigilance, the kind of kind of over-arousal. You're going to have um, nightmares. You're going to have things like that happening, not sleeping well. You're going to have intrusive thoughts. And you're, and you're going to have those kinds of things going on and avoidance, which is a key thing. You know, you find yourself avoiding, um, various places and experiences and situations, internal and external associated with your lost loved ones. So, you know, those are the, the hallmark characteristics of, uh, post-traumatic stress reaction. And, okay. um, they're very common. Okay. Now it's been five years and I'm still having nightmares. And I'm still, I've, I've maybe even lost my job. I may, might have some health issues, you know. I'm lost weight or gained weight, or and I'm, you know, I still don't. I can't think about this person in my life dying without breaking down into tears and that kind of thing. Where am I now, and what do you suggest? Well, so for that person, I I do really think that it is really important to seek some counsel because it sounds like that person you're describing is in real distress. It needs to find a way to get back into the stream of life. And that's the challenge in counseling, I think. Uh, I think a support group maybe might not even be enough. In fact, you know, that's a case that's made even by compassionate friends sometimes, you know, is that we need some extra help, you know, to get people through this. Um, and the, the, the dilemma is, you know, what, what can help? And through dialogic, through encounters, an empty chair or, whatever you want to call it, you know, un- t- really talking things through a little bit with your deceased loved one, even though, you know, just in this imaginary dialogue that you can have in counseling. So those are some of the things that, you know, kind of we've been, we found over the years really can make a huge difference. You, people have to get back into life and it's very hard. You know, you're in part B, it was part A of your life and now you're in part B and there's a clear dividing line. And how do I how do I negotiate this part B that was not you know the plan that I had for the rest of my life? So it's it's tough, and I think mourning is for you know is a lifetime kind of task. <clears throat> it's when people almost want to rush through it. I'm going, you know, you have plenty of time to do this. You know, look at me. Thirty years later, I had this profound grief experience with regard to my brother's loss. And I just had a client come in last week that had uh, her twin brother was murdered 20 years ago. She shelved it and never dealt with it, never talked about it or anything, because that's what her family did. And she it's now really bothering her. And so she came in and started talking about it, and we started talking mm-hmm. about her story. And then she also started thinking about continuing bonds in a new and different way, and she never thought about that until now. And it mm-hmm. almost set her free. It was like this whole new awakening, like, wow. I can still be connected just in his mm-hmm. memory, and he can still be part of my life in a different way. And that was very mm-hmm. freeing for her to hear. Talk yeah, about and that. that's how a model can kind of help us, you know, because it is mm-hmm. it is it is a kind of a conceptual framework, whatever. But it does describe reality, and and you know, and and you saw how she was before thinking, I have to just not have this relationship with mm-hmm. you in order to avoid all the suffering. But there is another path through this, and it, it, and, it, and it can lead to healing. Give us uh, three ways that we can continue bonds with our loved one. I mean, I've had many 
of my clients have brought in um, videos, photos. Um, a client brought in beautiful photos just last week of her best friend who had died three or four years ago and her husband who had died about the same time, about a year before that. And she put one, she had a dream the night before where she was between the two of them at some event. And so she brought in the photos that she put a photo of her best friend who was her lifelong wonderful friend. Um, and then her husband was on the other side and she sat in the midst of them and thought about them and talked about things they had done together. And, you know, that really affirmed this beautiful relationship she had. So she was sometimes would cry a little bit, but then there were tears of love and it was a beautiful thing. So reviewing one's life together with that person, I think talking about that person like, the opportunity I had to talk to that man about my brother was phenomenal. But I wish I was able to talk to my, my parents about it, him, but I didn't get a chance. And then all my other relatives are dead now, so you know who would remember him, the older generation. But I think talking to others about your loved one who knew your loved one is phenomenal. And, you know, that that's another one of those dilemmas because they, they think, well, the last thing I can talk to you about is the... Um, my, my, your loved one who died, so I don't want to ever mention your loved one's name, which is exactly what you want to talk about. You know, in some cultures, every year you gather before a, a little shrine with a photo of your loved one, and you kind of update them on what's going on in your life. This is how other cultures maintain continuing bonds. And, you know, I, I like my clients to kind of think about it that way, too. Like, well, let's give uh, him a little update here on, you know, what's going on in, in your life. And some people might think, oh, this is just, you know, getting keeping the person stuck in some way. No, you're stuck when you can't freely think about and have a positive experience of your lost loved one. I think that's where you get stuck. Yeah. You know, uh, just uh, since we're involved a lot with the Internet, one of the things that you can do is create a memorial site for your loved one. Use a birthday or whatever. Have a 30-year-old picture and say, here's, you know, my dad, you, you know, he died. 30 years ago, but this is what he looked like, and uh, I just wanted to celebrate his birthday this year, or, you know, just uh, Father's Day, I wanted to uh, celebrate him. You can put it on Facebook, and I think you'd be surprised at all the stories and things that that you get from that. But, uh, Dale, thank you for all the work, and and thanks for being on our show today. And Heidi, did you want to recap with anything, any thoughts you had? I just appreciate Dale sharing the story, because I know that he has reached a lot of people with his personal story, and I feel like that Dickie has done as much in his death as he's done in his life, and he's done it. He's still changing the world, Dale, and he's doing it through the work that you're doing today with people out there that are grieving and how you're offering hope to them and educating a whole group of students that are going to go on to be professionals in this field. So thank you so much. Well, thank you, and I, I honestly had no idea we'd be talking about Dickie and the significance uh he has in my life, and, and, and now I guess, in this way, being able to share that story with everyone, I hope uh, it's meaningful to people. I, it does touch me, and I really thank you for all your work, um, getting, getting um, the word out to people about support and caring and communication in the times in our lives. Well, thanks again for being on the show, and thanks, everybody, for listening. And Heidi and I want to remind you that if you've lost hope, please lean on ours until you find your own, and God bless.